Hello, and welcome to Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next 50 years. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm Rahul, the co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a technology platform where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise in order to accelerate the development of new therapeutics. I'm thrilled to welcome John Kilty to the podcast. He's currently the chief data officer at Decibel and a strategic advisor at Third Rock Ventures. John, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Martin. Of course. So what I'd love to do as a starting point is just learn a bit more about you for our listeners, uh, background, how you got to where you were, and, and how you started off in the industry. Do you want the Reader's Digest version or the uh, War and Peace version? <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. All right. So I am a, a biologist and bioinformatics guide by training. I uh, came out of an academic lab in the mid-90s was part of uh, an early biotechnical millennium pharmaceuticals. So it was somewhere in the ballpark of the 50th employee there. Um, and there um, was responsible for building out the genomics and genetic sort of capabilities in the early stages. So for me, it was a cool move going from industry where you're, you're dealing with small sample size, but, you know, um, and thinking in all these sort of uh, eclectic ways to then be trying to industrialize these processes that we we're doing in the lab. So it was a great experience learning about how to automate things, right? How to um, build underlying software to track things, but you know, downstream you know pipelines for analytics. And what was fun in those days is there were no commercial off-the-shelf anything. We had to do all those things from scratch, uh, and so we built out a you know pretty impressive team there. I was you know really lucky to be part of that company through um, its early heydays. It had multiple, um, but through the acquisition of Velcade and whatnot, and. But at that time, the chief business officer from uh, Millennium went to start a company called Infinity Pharmaceuticals. So fortunately, I had not ruined my reputation with him. So I was one of the early folks to go in and help get Infinity up and running, um, initially working more on the informatics and um, comp bio side of things. But ultimately, over my 13 years there, you know, owning data management, biostats, a broad swath of, uh, of all of the companies, both operations and, uh, and data efforts. And that was a fun ride just because it was my first really in the weeds experience um, being part of the designing trials, running them. We had an opportunity to be, do some pretty innovative things in terms of how we were both managing the data and then with that in hand, how we managed our clinical trials. So. We had somewhere in the ballpark of seven INDs, a whole lot of trials ranging from the normal healthy to registration trials, including some failed registration trials, um, you know, uh, did get, uh, you know, one of our drugs over the finish line. So it's a really great proving ground and, you know, great 13 years to learn a lot. But at the tail end of that, kind of got itchy again. Um, And usually I'm on a five-year cycle. So Mm -hmm. the fact that I lasted 13 is should give you a hint that the company went through many different uh, evolutions as well, which sort of kept me interested. Um, but went to Third Rock. So, you know, the Third Rock guys obviously know from the early millennium days, they were nice enough to keep in touch. And periodically they would start a company and say, hey, John, you want to come and work here? And at the time, that wasn't the right thing for me. And they sort of carved out a role at Third Rock that was a little unorthodox to have someone like me that was, you know, sort of data centric, a little bit heavy on the development side of things to come in and be part of starting these companies de novo. But that was a great experience and continues to be. And at first it was just about coming up with some standards for how we start those companies, in particular focused on the data side of things. So over the first four years, they were able to put in some concrete approaches that sort of got at the lowest common denominator for everyone in our company. So meaning 
we immediately got rid of server rooms, right, mm-hmm. and went to the cloud. We um, immediately came up with a sort of pick list of all of the sort of core technologies that we want for every company. And then as we start to bring people on board, you know, we'd sit down with the scientists and walk through, you know, we're going to piece things together this way. We estimate by doing that, I mean, you probably saved in terms of like getting up and running and being able to do real science, you know, somewhere in the order of, you know, six to nine months, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And so that was exciting. We got to be part of all the fun three companies ranging from like, first time really in the weeds, helping to sort of put together the business plan for um, companies like Neon Therapeutics, helping to get that one up and running to the one where I'm spending the bulk of my time now, which is Decibel Therapeutics. And the main reason for jumping into Decibel was you know, fewfold. So one was the same CBO that uh, jumped in and took over as CEO at Infinity is the CEO at Decibel. So I'm driven by a lot of things. I love innovation. I love being in a place where we can you know really push the envelope in terms of um, improving on how we do science in biotech companies, but it's also about the people for me, right? And uh, and that's a, it's a great crew over there, and that's been fun. And my job is to put in place the data strategy. Um, I'm also responsible for a lot of the clinical development operations, um, getting our first couple trials up and running, and then you know still dabbling at Third Rock, helping out at places like Thrive Detect and um, and some of the early Third Rock companies. It's like a dream job. And yep, sometimes like they keep paying me though. So it's great. So don't let them know that. I don't yeah. want them to know I'd probably do it for nothing. There's a really nice segue into the next topic, which I think is how biotech companies are now, or at least the, the more innovative ones are now starting to think about data and data strategy in the earliest days. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the evolution of that over the last 10, 15 years or so, and how companies can increase their competitive advantages by thinking about this stuff very early on. Yeah, so I can take this one in a lot of different ways. So it's interesting, if you look back historically, even in the early days of Millennium, I think we were pretty good at handling data. It just wasn't the same volume, right? Um, but we spent a lot of time you know, building out systems and whatnot to do that. And yet, at the same time, you know, when you talk to, you know, some of the folks at Third Rock, they still get confused between what's an IT guy and, you know, what's a comp bio person. They mm-hmm. think they can go to the desktop support guy um, <laughs> and get him to write R code for them. Yeah. So I look at one of my biomarkers is, you know, what does a person like Mark Levin, you know, is he able to distinguish between the IT person and the comp bio person? And how does that reflect the companies that we start? been an interesting trend i think over the last five to ten years as some of these initial hires that you make are people that are like data scientists right um uh, in the way that we think of them today and i know that that's driven by the fact that each of our companies have become more and more data intense and they've become data intense really early right and i think part of that is driven by some of the stuff i mentioned earlier around suddenly you've got the public cloud suddenly now small biotech companies right can be dealing with data at volume that you just couldn't have before mm-hmm. without some crazy kind of investment and so as a result we're able to do some really powerful in silico things very early and so some of these first hires we make are kick-ass comp bio people mm-hmm. or you know strong data scientists and what's even more interesting is suddenly now these chief data officers start popping up um, myself included right and I think that's pretty indicative of this. We, for a long time, we'd have these CIOs and no offense to CIOs out there, but I think the name what brings with it, you know, feeling like just purely operational, you're turning the crank. And so what is recognized, I think, by the companies that are really advocating for having these CDOs is the fact that the data is the most important asset, right? And now we have a lot of it. It's more heterogeneous than it's ever been. The volumes are astronomical, right? You know, even a simple startup company that is focused on personalized medicine, for example, mm-hmm. right? You know, how do you start thinking about the way you're bringing in your, you know, your DNA sequencing, combining it with, you know, output from natural history studies and all these sorts of things are 
five years ago, 10 years ago, when there wasn't the same level of confidence in AWS or Azure or you yep. know, GCP, it was just not possible. And so it's an exciting time, right? Um, yeah. I, uh, I told you this before we get on the air, but I look back millennium in the early days, we went through a spin out phase and we spun out a lot of different divisions of millennium. You know, there was a millennium information, um, but one of them was millennium predictive medicine. It was really, really an exciting concept. And the idea was um, we would leverage, you know, cutting edge sequencing technologies, we would be able to leverage our deep understanding of the molecular underpinnings of disease to be able to go in um, and pick the right patients for our medicines. And it was just too early, right? Um, But that's all changed, right? Um, And it's changed because of the way we generate data. It's changed because of our ability to manage that data. Clearly, you know, the tools are so much better, right? And I think the other thing that's really interesting, if you think about the maybe overused term machine learning and AI, I still think that lots of times those are hammers looking for nails. But, you know, that said, there are real applications for that. And I think early companies are starting to realize that. And it's the other rationale for having these chief data officers to help think about whether it's machine learning or some other algorithmic type approaches. As we do a better and better job of organizing our data, of classifying our data, suddenly you switch gears from the chemist or biologist sitting at a bench entering data into a silly ELN, Mm -hmm. right, to suddenly, you know, having these algorithms and having these, you know, uh, fundamental frameworks to actually help them make decisions, right, and ultimately, you know, start making suggestions to them. And we know that tech companies do this so well, right? Amazon has got me, got a beat on me, right? So they, (laughs) in terms of telling me what I want, you can imagine, it's it's easy to imagine the same thing happening. And I, I think the challenge is, is that, our data is much more heterogeneous and it's not just ad clicks like, uh, but we'll get there. And in order to do that, it's a question first of aggregating and classifying these data. And so in these early companies, we're spending a lot more time on that because you know, in the end, that's not going to help you just with the day-to-day tactical needs. It's going to help you long-term at sort of making this transition from people being in there doing manual work that I don't want a PhD chemist with 10 years of experience in there making their own SAR tables yeah. or, you know, or whatnot, right? Minimally, right now, I just want to help them, you know, use their brains on you know, doing great chemistry and great, making great molecules. And ultimately, I want the algorithms that I'm creating to be able to suggest things to them that they maybe didn't even think about. That they go, oh, you know, it's like sitting across the table from you right now and us, you know, uh, well, we don't, I'm not a chemist, but let's pretend <laughs> we are. And us riffing off of each other, say, oh, what if we try this group versus that group? Yeah, right? You can imagine that with the data structured and analyzed the right way, it just changes the paradigm. And that's choose chemistry because, you know, again, the early infinity days, but you can imagine the same thing in the clinic or you can imagine the same thing in uh, in biology. Yeah. And that starts with, you know, how are we um, collecting and managing and um, curating our data? Yeah. And if you think about particular assets as they're progressing from, you know, where we're going from discovery to preclinical, I, I think there's a lot of work being done at the earliest stages of discovery in terms of leveraging data. What would you like to see happen with later stage assets, let's say, as you're about to get into the clinic or you're in the clinic? That's also a loaded question. Can I start with a small diatribe on where I think we're at in the clinical <laughs> side of things? Um, so as I mentioned, I've been lucky now to be working in the clinical space for well, a long time. And coming at this from a data standpoint and being you know, pretty up on you know, tech in general, like, like a lot of... Uh, it's interesting to be in a role where you sort of cross these two worlds and you get to now compare the way that tech companies are dealing yeah. with data, making decisions, driving things versus what we do in biotech and pharma. And frankly, it's a little embarrassing. Yeah. And with that as a backdrop, I, I look at how we manage not just the clinical data we're generating in the trials, but even you know, the IND enabling things. Yeah. Like it's, it's crazy, right? And it's hard to make changes in those spaces, right? Why is it hard? You can do innovative things early, 
it's harder and harder to do things innovatively. Things as simple to me or as logical to me as our obligation to map data to CDIS standards. So uh, we're required to do that by FDA. Everybody knows that. And in fact, those same sort of standards have now moved back and we're doing those for the IND enabling studies, right? With using the SEND format. It is a such a logical place to now say, I'm going to have a central place where all of my clinical data goes and I'm going to start writing algorithms to do this mapping, right? We started talking about that infinity um, 10 plus years ago, mm. had tons of traction, very efficient. And yet when we got close to getting ready to file our NDA, you know, people got crazy nervous because no one's ever done this before. And if I hear people tell me again, no one's done this before, yeah. that's probably not the people I want to be working with. I'm yeah. not going to lie. And it's not, you, want to, you don't want to take crazy risks. But it turns out that if you go through and take this approach for mapping versus having your SaaS programmers do it, I would argue the um, much less error prone, right? Um, much more transparent and much more transformative, right? And so one of my frustrations in clinical in general is that it's, it is hard, it is really hard to get the mindset to change and you don't see the same level of innovation, especially with later stage studies yep. that you do in the research realm. And I, and I think some of that's warranted because again, Everyone wants to be first to FDA with a first-in-class molecule, but no one wants to be the first to go to FDA saying, oh, man, I wrote all of my code in R rather than SAS, SAS yeah. right? And I think we need to find a way to break that, right? And I still think even that can come from data, right? And how we manage that, how we do that better. Let's be honest, it's just utterly inefficient. In terms of, uh, so we, we started to now talk about clinical uh, efficiencies and you know, making sure that companies continue to look at advantages from a, from a data perspective in terms of how do you use all this data that's been collected. And I think just sharing data across or learning experiences across various different companies is, is something that we as an industry should try to get better at um, as long as you know, confidentiality and all those things continue to be at play. On the personalized medicine front, we should talk about how have you noticed that data is or could potentially impact personalized medicine? Yeah. So, I mean, I touched on some of that. It's, it's interesting. Look at uh, not just third-world companies, but across the board, it's become more and more imperative to be able to pick the right patient population, right? Yep. As I mentioned, we didn't really do a great job of that in Millennium. You know, it was a great idea. Companies are actually pulling this off now, right? And pulling this off as a deliberate part up front rather than finding something later out of desperation. And so more and more you see companies building clinical registries, genomic registries from day one, right? Ultimately, I hope that that becomes more and more, you can just go and get that data. Right now we're in this in-between phase where it's not quite enough of it out there. And so a lot of these early stage companies now are either leveraging that sort of data that's out there, um, doing that data mining to sort of select both targets, but also clinical populations. And that becomes part and parcel to how you're developing your drugs. I think that's come sort of the norm, right? Um, maybe not as much as I'd like, but I think that's gonna, that trend's gonna continue. And it's not just gonna be about variant data, right? It's mm -hmm. uh, as we get more and more efficient with all these other techniques. And there are some really cool third world companies like Rios that are focusing on metabolomics and intersecting that with expression. That's, you know, we've long said that that's gonna be the future of medicine, right? I think we're closer now than ever. Then the trick is how for an early biotech can you not be on the hook to have to generate all of that data yourself? In fact, I think the whole world benefits by more and more of that data being out there that you know a broader group can mine. Similar to what we've gotten out of things like you know, TCGA and mm -hmm. some of these other data sets that have been 
you know, so valuable for, for academics, but mm-hmm. also, you know, have been starting points for a lot of us on the industry side of things. Yep. And for me personally, I doesn't have to be a third rock specific asset. I love the idea that, you know, the rising tide is going to raise all ships. I think that everybody benefits from that. And I, I hope, I, and I think we will see more of that, not less. Yeah, I think what's also exciting is now where we were talking a bit about this is just the, the talent that's in biotech. And now we're starting to attract, let's say, software engineers that have historically just worked at tech companies in Silicon Valley now coming to work on much more complex problems dealing with just healthcare and both from a digital tech perspective, but also being ingrained in, in biotech companies early stages. So. I mean, and that's a great sign too, right? And to have people deciding between, do I go to Google or yeah. do I go to this tiny biotech and choosing the tiny biotech? And the folks that have been in the places like Google that now just want to go and do something different and yeah. they know how transformative they can be. Yeah. That, that bodes well for what we're trying to do now. What I will say is most of those sufferers underestimate how complicated the underlying biology is. Yes. But I'll tell you, they've made a lot of our early companies much stronger. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as a next topic, would would love to chat about just company creation and how you've seen the model change over the last five to 10 years and where you see it headed over the next 10 to 20 years. And obviously I come at this with a third rock bias, but if you look more generally, uh-huh, and I'll also, I'll approach back with my data bias, right? Um, there's a couple sort of metrics that we can use for this. I think a lot about the amount of money we're throwing into these companies in the beginning. And, you know, certainly I think Third Rock has been a big part of sort of changing the paradigm of sort of owning the idea and growing it internally, making sure you're putting enough money to work to get that company to the value inflection points and been pretty successful. And mm-hmm. it's nice to see other companies now sort of jumping in on that model. I think there's still a, that's a key thing going forward, right? But I'm pretty impressed with places like Atlas who are really good about, you know, selecting something that they know they can drive quickly and, and driving to value creation. I think there's room for both types out yeah. there and it's, and, it's, and it's awesome ultimately for patients. So that, uh, I think, isn't going to change. Um, in fact, if anything, you know, you can imagine the numbers could even go up more, right? And that will be interesting. Then the question is, what types of companies are we delving into? Obviously, Third Rock's, you know, jumping into some crazy areas like hearing and decibel, but a lot of the sort of core tenets of what we're doing still remain the same. How do you get into an area where you have unmet need? How do you know you can make a real difference? How do you know you can get to value creation in a relatively short period of time? And, you know, as Third Rock builds a company, you're always building in the idea that they are going to be sustainable in the long run. And that, I think, is the right way to build these companies, right? Uh, instead of just purely building the flip. Yep. Like I said, there's, I think there's a rationale for doing that sometimes, but the people we just talked about on the software engineers and the people that are so critical for some of these companies, they're coming to companies because they want to be part of building something special and, um, and driving something. What is interesting with that as a backdrop is thinking about the org charts for some of these companies mm-hmm. and the idea of something like a, a chief data officer being a key early hire, that was absolutely not the case five years ago. And now there's a certain subset of companies that we start and other companies start where you suddenly see that pop up as the most critical role. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a signal that the other thing that's changing with this type of company that we build is they are more and more data intense, right? Mm-hmm. And thank God we're actually recognizing that because you get someone to go in there early with a real data strategy, then you actually have a chance of doing something that no company that I'm aware of has done today, which is reining in my data, classifying and organizing it in the right way from day one, and then actually really being able to leverage, you know, um, these next-gen algorithms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because until you've done all the former, you know, the latter is limited at best. Yeah. Um, so I think that trend continues, right? And 
I get some of my great friends are in pharma. I don't think pharma is on the cusp of suddenly now being able to develop their own drugs. So I think the, the future is still bright for biotech and that piece excites me. But there's a lot more biotechs now, right? right. And I think the ones that are going to rise to the top are the ones that can sort of play with that intersection of doing great science, right? Great data, right? Yep. Uh, and and attract the right talent, which is another thing we talked about before this. It's, it's hard right now, right? And that's great. I think it's great for everybody out there in terms of getting what they deserve in terms of, you know, uh, getting paid. It makes it a lot more challenging when we're starting these companies to make sure that you do have this coalescence of talent that is... Uh, appropriate and good enough to drive these companies. Yeah. If you think about company creation model, so there's the the third rock venture creation model, and then if you think about if you're just someone that hasn't necessarily worked in biotech before, what do you think are some of the disadvantages that your you know the the folks that are the old school biotech entrepreneurs where they're not coming through a third rock? What do you think the disadvantages are of that route now, and how do you close the gap between? what Third Rock is doing from a company creation perspective versus, you know, a solo entrepreneur? There's a whole bunch of things, right? Yeah. So, and I actually, there's some great examples of solo entrepreneurs that have great ideas. Yeah. Generally, they're not the same people you want to build a company, right? Um, and lots of times the great initial ideas need a lot of percolation before, you know, the coffee's ready to drink, so to speak, right? Um, in fact, even internally, right? I mean, we the, you get these kernels of an idea and sometimes it's an idea and then you come up with an orthogonal look at it and you go, well, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. But right, if we think about it from this you know, different point of view, yeah. right? So I think lots of times these individual entrepreneur types come in with good ideas. Don't necessarily, if they don't know the biotech space, you don't know about value creation, you don't know what, what it's going to take to build that company. And you, it's a very different sort of value creation model than say someone that's coming out of tech, that's yes. for sure. So when I think about that, it's, um, I think one of the things that Third Rock does really well historically and a big part of the model is the partners at the firm are all their operators, right? And the upside for any of these ideas that flow through Third Rock that become companies is you know initially, you know, they're getting the most seasoned, you know, industry veterans to get these companies up and running, not with the idea that they're going to take over and run it for mm-hmm. Quite on the contrary, right? We're trying to build a company and put that in place. Um, and then you're hiring for the person that's going to replace you so you can hand off the baton. But the advantages of that company are just enormous, yeah. right? Both in terms of attracting talent, yeah. in terms of how you're doing the company build, the things you're putting in place. It's hard for an individual entrepreneur who's doing that first company yeah. to understand all the things that we're, those of us that have done this a few times screw up every time. What I feel good about is I think each time we do this, we screw up some new things and not the same things over and over again. So there's a huge efficiency gain. There's a huge, you know, gain in terms of uh, you know, probability of success, I would argue. Yeah. And we still need the, the really bright young entrepreneurs like throwing ideas out there because I love it when they stick. Too, yeah. right? It's phenomenal. Yeah. I wonder, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is I wonder what's going to happen over the next you know 10 years or so in terms of a, that the prevalence of, uh, the venture creation model, which I think is adding so much value to to the ecosystem and de-risking development, and whether all the successful companies or majority of successful companies would have come out of these models because you're at such an advantage, there's such a multiplier effect where you're able to just deploy a team that's that's been at the earliest stages of of develop discovery and development. Again, speaking from my totally biased um, point of view on Third Rock, and like I said, there's other venture firms that are yep. doing this now. You can't deny the success, right? And it's also one size does not fit all, right? Yeah. So part of that is picking the right companies where that model is going to work well, right? 
Is there anything else that you'd like to chat about today or you think the listeners would be interested in just overall thoughts on, on data, data strategy, anything, anything like that? No, I mean, just, just a general comment, right? I and mean, we sort of alluded to this through this whole conversation is I, you know, you're calling this biotech 2050. It is pretty exciting to think about where we're going to be in 2050 yeah. or, or sooner, right? We've been talking about, <laughs> let me back up. I know one, the things I'm saying are, are not novel. We've been saying a lot of the things that I'm repeating for the last 15, 20 years, and we're still not there, yeah. right, in terms of how we're going to be making decisions about knowledge management, right? I, actually, we should pull out all the buzzwords from the past, <laughs> uh, you know, from the past 20 years, yeah. um, because maybe we can dust off some of the old ones and reuse them and pretend they're new. But I think we're close on that, right? And I, we, we alluded to some of the reasons I think that's true. The rate with which um, these technology companies have grown and been so successful with how they're leveraging, you know, data management, how they're doing things like machine learning. And it's not biotech, it's these other companies that have been the proving ground for what you can do with data. And both because of the people now drifting into biotech, but also because, you know, we at biotech also look at this and say, look, that how can we apply that to actually developing mm-hmm. drugs? And like, you know, I'll speak for the, you know, third rock. I mean, we're there because we want to help patients, right? Yep. And it's nice as an ancillary benefit to, you know, make some money and all that. But, and I think the reason a lot of these great engineers and whatnot are drifting in from Silicon Valley mm-hmm. is that, you know, one person once told me, he goes, now, John, <laughs> I made a lot of money. It's been great. But the idea of optimizing for the number of clicks that someone's going to have on an ad, it just doesn't do it for me. Yep. But what we do get when we get people like that are people that are just phenomenally innovative, yep. right? And that's that have dealt with these big data challenges and they are just chomping at the bit to do something that they perceive as more meaningful. I think that convergence is going to keep happening. And I can imagine we're going to actually get to a time in the next 10 or 20 years where that scientist is sitting down and there's no ELNs, right? There's no limb systems, yep. right? And we've actually got these algorithms in the back making the right suggestions to the right scientists and helping them make better decisions. Yep. And I don't think we've seen the benefit out of IT, informatics, and whatnot that we would have liked to have seen. But I would I would say that we've sort of laid a lot of the plumbing. I, I think it's interesting in the first tech boom, then everything imploded and everyone was, anything.com was getting funded for a yep. while. And despite the implosion, what did happen is, you know, behind the scenes, all this infrastructure got put in place, everything yep. from cable being laid to whatever. I look back at the last 20 years and I feel like we've fundamentally done a lot of that work, right? We've put a lot of those pieces in place and we're in the process of changing the mindset of a lot of the folks that are decision makers and the companies in these firms where now we're actually going to be able to build, you know, true phenomenally differentiating companies yep. based on, you know, a lot of these fundamentals that we've been able to put in place. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't expect us to be in a place where we would be competing with the Googles of the world on particular applicants. And I think that's that's awesome. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great indicator of, of where we're headed and how attractive the space is because of the meaning that we're making. So, um, excellent. Well, thanks, John, for joining the podcast and for leading the charge in terms of application of data in biotech. It's been much needed for a while. And so I think our, our listeners are, are thrilled to have you on and thankful for what you've been doing. All right. Well, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's produced by Jean Merlane, edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.